Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preached, and this is what you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. I am so excited to be here and so excited to see all of you um, coming out of Easter before we head into our series on Mark next week. Um, but tonight we are talking all about truth and we're specifically looking at the idea that the resurrection is real. But truth seems like a bit of a funny thing these days. In some ways, it feels like the truth is whatever a person wants it to be. That's sometimes the message that we get. We're encouraged to speak your truth to people. And I struggle with this concept a little bit because the thing about truth is that it isn't subjective. It doesn't care how you feel or what you think about it. If something is true, then it just is. It's not a perspective or an opinion it's real. The truth is very black and white, and that is something I feel like the world is trying to make grey. And so things can sometimes get a little bit messy with people when you claim to own the truth or to know the truth, or sometimes the truth might be really difficult to find. So I want to tell you guys about a conversation that I had with someone that really surprised me. It was a bit about truth and um, it stuck with me for a really long time. So it was a conversation with a girl that I'd never met before and it started off pretty normal, introduced ourselves, hi, yeah, whatever. Um, she eventually found out I went to church and quite confidently she was just like, oh, I don't believe that Jesus ever existed. And I was like, yeah, fair enough, lots of people don't think that. This seemed like a pretty general statement you hear out there and so I got my little apologetic hat on ready to give her some like facts and things that might help her to understand and think about this a bit more and I was like oh well you know there is a lot of historical evidence for Jesus even more than some other historical figures like Julius Caesar and people like that and without even thinking she just goes oh I don't think he existed either 
And I was like, okay, I don't really know what to do with this. And so I kept, I was like, all right, then how do you know that anything we learn about ever really happened or anyone that we read about in books was real? And she just goes, oh, I don't. I think it's all made up. And I was, I was pretty stumped back then. I was 19 and I was like, all right, this is, I've just given up on this girl. Poor girl. But anyway, but I thought that was a really interesting thing because for her, if she hadn't seen it or experienced it herself, then it just couldn't possibly be true. Or if it was, she didn't really care. Now, I don't think I needed to push her too hard on that for her to understand that that is a pretty dangerous way to think. But it was a conversation that made me think a lot about how we perceive and accept something as true. To say that I was surprised was an understatement, but um, it all worked out. (laughs) Now, we as Christians believe that the Bible is truth, that God is is and holds the ultimate truth and that the Bible is God's word and his story. To be a Christian is claiming that you know the truth. And at the heart of it, at the heart of this truth, the most important thing about it is that Jesus died and that he was raised back to life again. And the resurrection is the focus of this part in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And why Paul is preaching about this here is because some of the Corinthians, they didn't actually believe in the resurrection. They were like, it didn't really happen and it doesn't really matter. And uh, Paul's like, no, no, no. The resurrection is pretty much everything. So they weren't disputing life after death or stuff like that. They were disputing the bodily resurrection, that Jesus came back to life in human flesh and blood. So tonight we are going to break up this passage into three sections. The first two verses is Paul's introduction to the gospel, to what he's going to be talking about. Verses 3 to 8 is the gospel. He's talking about Christ's death and resurrection and his witness to people. And then the third bit is Paul and God's grace. So let's start with verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So Paul starts by telling them, by reminding them, this is something they know. They're Christians. They believe this. They've heard this before. They've accepted it. He's like, you guys, you know this. And he continues and says, by this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. It's by this gospel that they are saved. Paul has taught them the truth. And the truth is what is going to save them, if they keep believing it. We cannot claim that everybody will go to heaven. There is one truth and there is one way. And that is the gospel that Paul has taught them and is encouraging them to still believe in. But what is this gospel? If it is the one truth that will save us, what is it? And from verse 3, let's read. For, I, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. The gospel is all about Jesus. It is important to remember it is all about Jesus who is fully God and fully man that he died and was raised to life again. That fact, that piece of information is of first importance. It is the key to our salvation. Jesus died and he rose again. There are a lot of things in the Bible, but before you know anything else, you must know this. The gospel is all about Jesus and what he has done. It is not primarily about us and how we can be saved. And I think that might be a common misconception. Sometimes when we talk about Jesus or God's plan, we think about it and speak about it in terms of us. The, the story is God's plan of how to save us. It's about how we can know God. It's about how our sins are forgiven. And while yes, all of that is true, I think that is a far too narrow lens through which we can understand the Bible. The Bible, let me say it again, is all about Jesus and what he has done. He is in the very first chapter of the Bible and he is in the very last chapter. Everything is created in and for Jesus. It is all about him, not about us. Our salvation is certainly a really beautiful part of that story. And God loves us and Jesus did die for our sins, but we are not at the center. It's Jesus's life that gives meaning to our lives, not our lives giving meaning to Jesus's life. We are just one part of a much bigger, much more beautiful story. And so knowing that this gospel is all about Jesus, Paul uses four key verbs to summarize what that gospel actually is. Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised, and he was seen, or he appeared. And the first and the third verbs are the most important ones there, and we know that because it has, according to the scriptures, attached to it. And the other two verbs are there to be proof of those first two. So what is essentially happening here is Paul is presenting two true facts and two pieces of proof. Jesus died and the proof was that he was buried. The burying of Jesus' body is proof that the disciples didn't steal his body or the women didn't just rock up to the wrong tomb and find it empty. They eventually would have found Jesus and his body. Jesus was actually dead and he was actually buried. People saw it. There were guards at the front of his tomb. It was real. And the second fact is that Jesus was raised. And the proof of that was that he appeared or he was seen by people. And Paul puts a lot of time into showing people the appearances of Jesus because it was the resurrection that people were contesting. They're like, that bit of the gospel, that didn't really happen, doesn't really matter. And he's like, no, 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 no. We have plenty of proof that we know that Jesus was raised. So listen to the part about Jesus's appearance. He appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. So we're going to step through these lists of people a bit more slowly because this list is very significant. Paul is giving the Corinthians proof of the resurrection. He mentions Cephas, who is Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends. And that's important because Cephas, or Peter, is one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. He's one of the top dogs going out, telling people about Jesus. He's one of the pillars of the church. And this man saw Jesus after the resurrection with his own eyes. That is significant. He mentions the 12 who are the other apostles who have authority to teach about Jesus and who are on mission telling the world about Jesus. And then he mentions more than 500 people, most of whom are still living. That is a lot of people. And the reason why he is saying this is because you can go ask them. The Corinthians, they were still alive walking around. They could go fact check this story. It's not like the 12 got together and came up with this plot to tell the whole world a lie. No, this was far, far, far bigger than Jesus' closest friends. And surely you know how secrets go. It is hard to get a group of three people to keep a secret, let alone 500. It is impossible to think that more than 500 people got together, decided to tell a lie about seeing Jesus return from the dead and for it to work so successfully that not one of them squealed about it for the rest of their lives. That is impossible. The only logical conclusion is that more than 500 people genuinely saw Jesus in the flesh and the Corinthians could go talk to them about it if they wanted. But if the Corinthians still weren't convinced, Paul mentions two other people by name, James and himself. Now, James is also one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, so that's important, but there's another reason why James is such an important name worth mentioning. James is actually Jesus' brother, and he didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. John 7 verse 5 says that Jesus' brothers didn't believe him. But after James saw Jesus come back, return from the dead, he believed and he became one of the most important people in the church. And Paul concludes his proof of Jesus' resurrection with himself. And there's a bit of a funny term in this bit. It says that he appeared to Paul as to one abnormally born. And that's a bit weird language. And what it means in the Greek is essentially a birth that violates the normal period of gestation. There are lots of English words that we can translate from that. But what Paul means by this in this context is that he saw Jesus unusually late. For everyone else, Jesus rose from the dead. He walked around, he appeared to them, and then he ascended back up into heaven. But Jesus' appearance to Paul is much later. 
It was unusual, but it was effective. Paul saw Jesus in the flesh. After he ascended from heaven, he came and he spoke to Paul. And Paul also didn't believe in Jesus until he saw him. Now, not only did Paul not believe in Jesus, but he was actually killing people who did believe in Jesus. He was murdering Christians before Jesus appeared to him and changed his life. If anyone is proof of the resurrection, if anyone's life has done the biggest 180 like that, it is Paul. And so it's important that Paul mentions James in himself because it completely destroys the argument that those appearances of Jesus were just hallucinations of people who missed Jesus or who were sad that he was gone and it was wishful thinking that he would come back. No, he appeared to non-believers and completely changed their life. Paul is going to such lengths to give evidence for the resurrection because it's the truth. And if you remember back to verse 2, if people didn't believe in the truth in the resurrection, then they were believing in vain. This gospel, this death and resurrection is what saves them, is what saves us. The resurrection is real and it matters. It is literally a case of life and death. And so Paul moves on to his last section, verses 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I but the grace of God that was within me. <clears throat> Paul acknowledges that he doesn't deserve to be an apostle. He was literally murdering Christians. What right does he have to be teaching them about Jesus? But God's grace is so great that it has the power to transform even the hardest of hearts. And that was is the beautiful thing about truth. It didn't matter what Paul thought or how he felt or what he did. The truth was always true and it changed his life. God's grace is unreasonable. What business does someone who have Christians have someone who is killing Christians got in teaching all these people and writing stacks of the New Testament the stuff that we read today he doesn't but that's how good God's grace is and Paul finishes this section beautifully in verse 11 whether then it is i or they this is what we preach and this is what you believe and here what he is saying is that the truth is what is preached by all the apostles It does not matter who taught them the gospel because they are all teaching the same thing. Earlier in the in Corinthians in in this letter, it's clear that the Corinthians were getting really 
like narky and a bit argy-bargy about who they followed, about who taught them the gospel. Like, no, Cephas taught me the gospel. No, I heard it from Paul. No, I heard it from this guy. I'm better. You're blah. He's like, stop it. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It doesn't matter which one of us told you about it. It's about him. And it's the same. And we've all been preaching that. So stop worrying. This is the gospel and it's true. The death and resurrection of Jesus are non-negotiables of the faith. They are true, they happened, and the whole Christian faith is built on them. And this truth is just as important for us today. This is what our faith stands on. This is the truth that we are telling the world so that they can be saved. It's the truth that transforms us. And if you are a Christian, then you too have proof of the resurrection. We can't go and talk to those 500. They are long gone. But we have encountered our God. We, if you believe, you have a relationship with Jesus. I have never met Jesus in the flesh like a human body standing in front of me. But my relationship with him is as real as it is with any living person I know. I speak to him. I listen to him. I'm comforted by him. I learn more about him. He has transformed me. I know that there is no way that Jesus is still dead because I know him. And I think being uh, reminded of the gospel, what is truly at its heart is important for us. Firstly, for unity. It says of first importance, Jesus died and was raised back to life. That is the most important thing. That is what I hope you will hear at any church you go to or from the lips of any Christian that you speak to. And that is what we need to remember. It can be easy to get frustrated with each other and to fight over matters that are of second or third or fourth or fifth importance. And don't get me wrong, like working through those things and discussing those things are important. The truth matters on all levels, but we need to keep the main thing the main thing and not let other theological differences tear us apart. And I know it can be hard. When I believe that I'm right, it is so difficult for me to swallow my pride and not just try to prove the other person wrong. I know I'm right and I want them to know that I'm right. But if I'm doing that in a way that foregoes love and care, then I am completely in the wrong. I have to remember that if they also believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then they're family. And love must always come first, regardless of what we agree or disagree on. Secondly, it's important to remember that we do have the truth. In a world that is constantly telling you that you are what you say you are and that truth is relative or even sometimes irrelevant, it's important to know that we have something we are certain of. And the world can't change that because it's true. And there's all kinds of stuff that God says about himself and about you and me that the world can't change either. We are loved We are created in God's image. Jesus died for our sins. If we believed in him, then we are saved and we are called children of God. That is all true and certain. 
And it's important to remember that because so often life doesn't feel very certain. Things happen and stuff changes and things don't always go according to plan. And there's going to be times when we're surprised and disappointed and confused and we might feel a little bit lost. But the gospel is our solid ground. It is never going to change. It has not changed from the very first letter that was written in this book to the last. Jesus' death and resurrection was always God's plan. He said it hundreds and hundreds of years ago, even if they didn't understand it. It is never going to change. It's something that we can stand on and be sure of. And that rock that we can cling to is that Jesus died, that he was raised back to life, and that one day, if we believe in him, we will experience a resurrection into a world that is perfect. Despite all the unknown and uncertainty we experience in this life, Jesus is certain. And if we believe in him, our future is certain too. God's got a big plan and the resurrection is a sign of the new restored life that is coming for us if we hold firmly to the truth of the gospel that has always been preached. Jesus' resurrection is real and it matters. Hold on to that truth even when life tries to pull you away from it. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you created this this whole universe, Father, and you knew before you even began that where we were going to finish, Father. I thank you that our gospel is all about Jesus. I thank you that um, there is so much beauty and goodness that we see in him. And I thank you that you have so many incredible things to say about us and our lives as well, Father. I pray that you will hold us, that you will show us the truth and you'll help us to cling to it even when the world says it's foolishness. We thank you that Jesus died, that he rose and that we have a resurrection waiting for us too, Father. Amen.